Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the normally scheduled programming here with our Week 7 recap and Week 8 preview. This is Hummus Tailgate Party. I am your host, Thomas Jackson. Thomas Jackson, beautiful podcast from Denver. Lots of different places where we could start today. I'm going to skip over a couple of the big upsets uh, in the meantime and jump straight to the most entertaining game maybe I've seen all season. Ole Miss took down Tennessee 31-26. to We talked a lot about off-the-field issues in the Break the Glass Orgeron episode. Um, there were some issues technically off the field that became on-the-field issues from the Tennessee fan base in this one that delayed the game almost half an hour uh, with a couple minutes left and turned it into truly one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen watching a college football game. So... On the part of the game, Ole Miss had control for basically the whole game, um, but Tennessee did a really good job at fighting back in the second half and making it a one-score ball game in crunch time. Of course, this matchup was extra heated. Tennessee fans get really riled up anytime they have like a tiny taste of victory, but add in the fact that Lane Kiffin is returning to Knoxville for the first time since he ditched them for USC as a head coach. And uh, the Tennessee fans were absolutely riled up and out for blood, quite literally, on Saturday night. So Tennessee fought back, made this a really incredible ball game. Um, Matt Corral, his stat line is pretty bizarre. They He had 30 rushes for 195 yards in this ballgame, and now he's questionable against LSU on Saturday. Hendon Hooker, Tennessee's quarterback, who of course took over the starting role after a co- couple weeks of Joe Milton disappointing, got hurt on the final drive of the game and is now questionable against uh, Alabama. This score wasn't quite as high as a lot of people thought it would. I might have mentioned on Twitter that this total closed at, I believe, 82, which would have made it the highest uh, over-under in SEC history, as it usually goes when you have a record-setting line like that. It didn't come anywhere close to hitting it, as there were only, let's see, 57 points scored in the 31-26 Ole Miss win. However, uh, yardage and play-wise, these teams definitely kind of lived up to that clip that we were expecting as Ole Miss ran 110 plays and Tennessee ran 93 for a total of 203 plays ran. Uh, Quite insane, and it's a good week to be Alabama or, well, kind of LSU, all things considered, because both of these teams are going to be really beat up all week, including both starting quarterbacks. So we'll touch more on both of those following week matchups later. Uh, The big story from the game was fans delaying the game by nearly half an hour by throwing all sorts of trash and debris onto the playing field. This came after a so Tennessee was driving with a couple minutes left in the ball game, and they had a fourth and twenty four uh, that they had to convert because they were down by five to Ole Miss. They weren't in field goal range anyway, but they uh, threw a pass over the middle, and they ended up about a half a yard short of the first down marker. It looked like he was going to get it. Pretty excruciating. 
for the Vols after, you know, fourth and 24, then getting that close. The referee did give him what I thought was a pretty bad spot on the field. He, the referee marked him down a whole yard short of the first down marker. And they went to instant replay to review the spot of the ball when he was down. There was nothing that I saw that was indisputable evidence enough to overturn the call. And the more you looked at it, he was holding the ball kind of down by his torso instead of extending it as far as he could. It looked like if he had extended the football, then Tennessee would have gotten the first down and the ref probably would have just given him the spot and this whole replay would have never happened. But it was pretty clear that the ball was somewhere down around his torso and the referee probably had the right call by not giving him the first down. It was really hard to tell watching the replay. Uh, I, I think if the referee would have marked him down uh, you know, beyond the first down marker, then they probably would have stuck with that call on the field too because it just didn't look disputable enough, indisputable enough, uh, either way to really overturn anything. So, I mean, kind of a tough pill to swallow. I get it, but that's how that rule goes. So when they came back and said uh, that they were the call in the field was confirmed, it was a turnover. Tennessee, mostly students, I'm sure, started throwing all sorts of shit on the field. Um, there was just mostly bottles and stuff. There was the kind of now internet viral mustard bottle uh, that the cameras got a shot on of on the sideline. This is like taking on a life of its own because people I saw on Twitter were taking pictures of the Tennessee concessions because they thought maybe someone stole it, brought it down for the hot dog, but they had like the big industrial mustard bottles with the you know, the pumps that you see oftentimes in stadiums. So I don't know if that was retrieved from like a kitchen somewhere, if someone brought it into the game. I've heard people saying maybe it was one of the flasks that just looks like a mustard bottle, but it's built to be a flask on the inside. Maybe someone cleaned it out a couple weeks prior and used it as a flask. I don't really know. Craziness. Uh, it peaked when Lane Kiffin got hit with a golf ball. It's another good question. Like, who did anyone bring this mustard bottle into the stadium? Apparently, someone brought a golf ball into the stadium, uh, because and they actually managed to peg Lane Kiffin with it. And after that happened, I, I was almost expecting them to just stop the game. The Tennessee band and cheerleaders were all evacuated during all of this madness. After Kiffin showed the ref the golf ball, I was like, surely they're not going to let this go on because if someone gets hit in the head, you know, I mean, especially, I mean, anybody, but especially an Ole Miss player or like a cheerleader that has nothing to do with anything, um, you know, it's kind of a miracle that nobody got hurt with how much crap was being thrown. Um, so the game eventually went on after they got the field cleaned up. Uh, they kicked a bunch of students off out of the stadium, but there were still some left as they, you know, probably had trouble evacuating uh, 100,000 plus people there in Nayland Stadium. And there was a camera shot when play resumed and I guess the cops and security guards had let off a little bit of all the students that were like that had 
seats up towards the top of the lower bowl. They just all started charging down in this big, open, empty section from where, I don't know if it was where the band was sitting or just where other students had gotten thrown out, but it literally looks like they were about to charge the field of play before the game was even over. And at that point in time, it wouldn't have even surprised me because that crowd was being so insane. Tennessee, the game wasn't even over. Tennessee had either two or all three of their timeouts, and they held Ole Miss. So Ole Miss had to punt the ball with around a minute to play. Tennessee had a great punt return and returned it across the 50 to, I believe, the 46-yard line. And then they had a few plays with, you know, some time on the clock to win the thing. That's when Hendon Hooker hurt his leg and had trouble getting off the field on his own weight, if I recall correctly. Milton entered the game. He damn near had a touchdown pass, but in typical Joe Milton fashion, he barely overthrew the guy, and it was just out of his reach. Uh, they, They did progress the ball a little bit with Milton in there. They had one last play with three seconds left on around the 30-yard line where, you know, it's close enough to where you can actually run a passing play and not just have to throw up a 65-yard Hail Mary total prayer. But instead of doing that, Milton scrambled around for a few seconds and then ran the ball, and he got 15 yards or whatever, but then he just ran out of bounds with no time on the clock, and that was the game. I... He clearly just freaked out and couldn't, you know, <laughs> couldn't handle the pressure of the moment because uh, there's no ex- there's no reason to run the ball. And if you do, then you at least just do a Hunter Henry lateral, you know, just throw up a prayer backwards and see if you can get lucky and get it to one of your teammates if you're about to get tackled. But uh, he just ran out of ran out of bounds and conceded, and that was the end of it. Kiffin, of course, played it off calm, cool, and collected. Uh, He was getting more shit thrown at him as he was leaving the field. Um, He caught a water bottle that looked like it had piss in it. Wouldn't be surprised if it did. And then my favorite part of the whole game, as he was running in the tunnel at Tennessee, he threw his visor up to the fans um, as someone would do if they had people actually cheering them around. I thought that was a really funny way (laughs) to end it off. And then... He, uh, he, of course, has been giving Tennessee hell in his sarcastic, smart-ass kind of style on Twitter. And he will literally never, ever let Tennessee live this down, as he shouldn't. That was an absolutely, completely pathetic display of fandom by all of the Vols. And, like, you know, I get it. They've had a terrible decade. They've been horrible for the most part, and they, you know, every now and then when they have a decent year going like this year and they get a little taste of victory, they just freak out and do something insane and rash, and uh, I don't think anything can top this, but yeah, they were fined $250,000 by the SEC for their um, (laughs) during-the-game antics. Uh, that's like two and a half times more than A&M got fanned for charging the field. And, you know, while both are kind of dangerous for the opposing team and players, I think the fact that Kiffin literally got pegged with a golf ball from the crowd uh, certainly warrants that. So, uh, yeah, we'll see if Tennessee can put this behind them. I have no idea if Moten is playing or not. It looked pretty bad. 
but that's I saw today Heupel said or not Milton sorry Hooker uh, Heupel said it's a day-to-day thing so we'll keep track on him and Matt Corral uh, as they have a couple more big games coming up this week no time to dwell on it but yeah shout out to Tennessee really epic performance there uh, we'll start up at the top Georgia beat Kentucky 30 to 13 in Athens. Uh, nothing, you know, really crazy happened here. It went about like we expected. Georgia just dominated both lines of scrimmage and overwhelmed Kentucky. Georgia was able to move the ball well, both through the air and on the ground, as they had 6.5 yards per carry. You're just not going to, you know, be able to stop them ever when they're doing that. Uh, compared to 2.7 yards per carry for the Cats. Georgia had 12, point, uh, 12 yards per catch, while Kentucky only had 4 yards per catch. And I don't think I need to go too much more into it outside of those basic statistics. Georgia just dominated up front, and Kentucky was overwhelmed. Uh, Kentucky did have a pretty funny uh, backdoor cover, though. Mark Stoops, Stoops uh, used a timeout in like total, total, total garbage time uh, with only a few seconds left on the clock to (laughs) score another touchdown. Made the scoreboard look a little bit better, but most importantly got them within the spread. So that caused a lot of uh, discussion if you had either side of that. Number two, Iowa loses to Purdue 24 to seven. Purdue continues their reign of terrorizing AP top two teams Iowa had five turnovers in this game. Usually, like all season, they've been on the other side of that, where like in that Maryland game, I think they had five turnovers in the first half that they had caused the Terrapins to give up. This time, Iowa was coughing it up themselves. Purdue, um, you know, Iowa's offense has never impressed anybody ever, but this, you know, their defense was what was carrying them so far this season. Purdue racked up 464 yards of total offense on the Iowa defense, and I mean, it, you know, it wasn't even wasn't even close at all. Uh, this was a kind of tri- tricky spot for Iowa coming off of a number three Penn State win. Um, so I was personally on Purdue in this one, uh, taking the 11 and a half. That's just a lot of points for an offense that bad in Iowa, especially in a big letdown spot, especially with the. AP top two slaying Purdue Boilermakers. I saw all sorts of really, really entertaining stats on Purdue uh, after this win. So ESPN Stats and Info tweeted out, Purdue has nine wins versus AP top two teams when unranked, the most by any team in the poll era. No other team is more than four such wins. Purdue is also the first uh, the first team to win consecutive games by double digits versus AP top two teams when unranked in each contest. Of course, the the other one being when they beat number two Ohio State by 29. I'm sure everyone remembers that one. It was a joy to watch. Purdue is now ranked number 25 in the country following their big upset victory. They have not been ranked since 2007. This was the longest drought out of any Power 5 team in the country. So, big ups, Purdue. I, 
<laughs> for such a mediocre program, how they can just knock off these teams year after year after year. It is rather bizarre and wild and certainly entertaining for the rest of us if you're not a top two Big Ten team. So good for them. I did not expect Iowa to make it to the playoffs as I, I was kind of expecting them to just in case they could get matched up with my tide because, you know, if Purdue can beat them 24-7, to 7, imagine what Alabama or Georgia would do to them. But, uh, yeah, that opens up a slot for the real contenders, and that's probably the last we will hear of Iowa for the year. Maybe they finish off the season 10-2, and two, whatever, still be very successful, but I think any playoff hopes for them are probably donezo. Oklahoma State beat Texas... 32 to 24. I don't have too much on this one, uh, but just another fourth quarter Texas defensive collapse where their offense stalls out, much like last week against Oklahoma. Uh, this time around, Texas led by eight in the fourth quarter. They were up 24 to 16 on the Cowboys with about 10 minutes left. And for the rest of the game, uh, Oklahoma State ended it on a 14 to 0 run. So Texas can start start strong. Maybe we'll start having to bet some Texas first half lines. Um but yeah, betting on them for the full game has proven to not be the move because they just simply cannot uh they can't keep up. They can't do it for four quarters. I don't know if it's a stamina thing if the other team just outphysicals them and they get, you know, beaten down, but they, uh, their offense seems to disappear when they need it the most to finish off with another scoring drive or two in the second half. Auburn beat Arkansas 38-23. One of the more surprising uh, results of the day, not so much that Auburn won, but that they won by 15 on the road against this Arkansas team that is quickly cooling off. Um, strangely, Auburn relied heavily on their passing game in this one. Um, they really couldn't run the ball very well at all. Bixby only had, I think, 68 yards. Bo played a really good game. He went 21 for 26 for 292 yards through the air with two touchdowns and a pick. Uh, he also had 42 rushing, rushing yards and a rushing touchdown. Arkansas has gotten very quiet Ever since their hot start, they began the year 4-0, and and since then they've posted three losses to Georgia, Ole Miss, and Auburn. So maybe, or maybe Arkansas is kind of the team we expected them to be after all. Uh, you know, they still have some difficult games coming up in Texas A&M and Alabama, not in that order, but... They don't have an easy rest of the season, as nobody in the SEC really does. But, yeah, I mean, the Hogs, they, they desperately need a victory uh, just to kind of get get them back on track and get some momentum because one more loss, and they're going to be at 500 after starting 4-0. LSU defeated Florida, another pretty shocking outcome, 49-42 to in Tiger Stadium. LSU, I mean, they had control of this game the entire time. Florida kept trying to fight back and put uh, put in Anthony Richardson in the second half. That helped out their offense, but their defense could not ever get enough stops. It's kind of a situation where LSU, uh, LSU led by 15 in the third quarter. Florida fought back to the point where they were 
scoring a touchdown to tie it up, then LSU would take the lead. Then Florida would score to tie it up, then LSU would take the lead. And Florida could never get a couple stops in a row that they really needed to to take the lead over. Um, so it was 42-42. LSU ended up winning that ball game, 49-42. Um, let's see. So yeah, quite the quarterback controversy now in Gainesville or maybe not. I don't know. Dan Mullins being really weird about this whole thing, being super hesitant to give the starting role to Richardson. Although I think that's what everybody in the Florida Gator fan base would like to see now that Emory Jones just hasn't been able to get it done very well. Richardson came in and relieved Jones in the second half Uh, He went 10 of 19 for 167 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions, 37 rush yards, and a rushing touchdown. So total, he had a four to two touchdown to interception ratio, kind of like a Jameis Winston stat line there, honestly. LSU had an impressive stat line of their own. They completely pushed around Florida, especially on the offensive side of the ball for the Tigers, which is very surprising because I don't think LSU has been able to run the ball against anybody all year. But Tyrion Davis-Prince had 36 carries for LSU, 287 yards, and three touchdowns. So he absolutely just gashed Florida to a shocking clip. I don't know where this came from, but LSU, I mean, they're definitely not good. on the line they've been pushed around all year they had I think 11 rushing yards against Auburn who like yeah has a better defense than Florida but 270 287 yards for this one cat alone versus 11 for the whole team against Auburn that's just you know that is just wild and uh, I think Florida's defensive line is going to have a long week or possibly long rest of the season because they put up that effort against Georgia Georgia might beat them by 50 plus uh speaking of georgia anthony richardson will probably be starting for them it's hard to imagine that they roll emory jones back out there after richardson seems to be the answer for the gators i doubt it will be enough for georgia but if nothing else it you know might give the team a boost and kind of the fresh look that they need who knows uh this was obviously Kind of going back to our Orgeron discussion from yesterday. Too little too late for LSU and Coach O. Uh, the, deci- the decision was clearly already made because it makes you know no sense to fire him after a big upset rivalry W. So, I mean, th- these, these discussions of him being done at LSU had already been taking place and they just announced it after the game, which they would have done whether it had been a win or, or a loss. Now, just quickly uh, looking at some other scores from atop the rankings, uh, Alabama got back on track against Mississippi State, 49-9. Mississippi State threw the ball 55 times, which isn't surprising. It's just kind of (laughs) a little, you know, I guess it is a little surprising to see that on the box score, but that's what you expect from a Mike Leach offense. Uh, in the pregame, when they were doing one of their little sideline bits, uh, they were t- they had talked to Will Rogers, the Mississippi State quarterback, and they asked him something about playing Bama the upcoming Saturday. And he went on this whole rant about how calling them Bama feeds into the intimidation factor that they want you to do, and that it's Alabama, not Bama. 
Maybe Will Rogers should have watched a little bit more tape instead of worrying about what the hell to call his opponent because he posted three interceptions, two of them being in the first quarter. That essentially sealed State's fate from a very early time time in that game, but I'm glad that he was uh, spending all of his time apparently wondering whether he should pronounce the first three letters of our game or not. So good job, Will Rogers. Really great approach there. Cincinnati took care of UCF 56-21, and Oklahoma finally seems like they might be getting it together with their new quarterback, Caleb Williams, getting the starting nod from Lincoln Riley over Spencer Rattler, of course. Uh, This is the most that their offense has scored all year, and maybe the Sooners have finally kicked it into gear like we thought they would have from week one. Now moving along to our week eight preview, it'll be a pretty quick and snappy one. Uh, The best game of the week, I believe, is Oklahoma State at Iowa State. This is probably the weirdest combination of a ranking and spread that I've seen all year. Um, Oklahoma State is number eight and Iowa State is unranked, but Iowa State is a seven point favorite over a top 10 team despite not having a number next to their name. So that's bizarre. Definitely don't see that often at all, especially uh, to the degree of an entire touchdown. Iowa State, as my day one listeners know, I was super big on them going into the season. They let me down more than anybody else besides Washington uh, in September, but I think that they might have found their stride too little too late for a playoff thing, but the Big 12 is still pretty wide open. Oklahoma State is probably the sneakiest, quietest, undefeated team in the whole country, so this will be a really interesting game that has a lot of Big 12 implications. LSU plays at number 12 Ole Miss. This time the ranked team is actually the favorite. Ole Miss is a 10-point favorite in that game with the total being 75 and a half. Ole Miss, like I said earlier, is really banged up from that physical long game against Tennessee, uh, including Matt Corral. So whether he plays or not will be huge for the Rebels. I'm not sure what their backup situation is like, but I just know that he hasn't really (laughs) played much this year. So LSU, who knows? Who knows? I mean, what are they going to be for the rest of the year? They will probably be just very Jekyll and Hyde. You know, one week they might come out, look like they did against Florida. And then the next week, you know, they might lay another egg like they have basically all season. Such a really weird situation with Orgeron being fired, but like not yet. They're giving him like a six week notice, basically. I don't remember this ever happening. I mean, it's one thing for a coach to, you know, that's really old, say, hey, like, I'm I'm done after this year, but I'm going to coach one last season. But that's obviously different than when you're being forced to leave. If anyone knows of any other uh, situations where a coach got fired, but, like, you know, was allowed to finish off the season, let me know because I'm curious about that and nothing comes to the top of my head. So Ole Miss should win that game, but if LSU is weirdly inspired after the firing of their coach 
and wants to finish strong for him. Nothing would really suggest that they <laughs> have his back too much, but uh, who knows? It, it'll probably be a weird one. Tennessee plays at number four, Alabama. Of course, it's not the CFP ranking, but Alabama back in the top four of the AP. Alabama's a 25-point favorite. The total is 67 and a half. This game is at 6 o'clock on Saturday evening, Central Time. This would be the 15th victory in a row for Alabama to the point where youngins like my brother listening, if he didn't know any better, he wouldn't even think that this is a rivalry game. I mean, Tennessee, they've put up a couple years ago in Tuscaloosa. They actually put up a really good fight with uh, Garantano and Pruitt leading the way. Now it's obviously a Tennessee team that looks drastically different, but their signal caller is questionable. Like I said, he got hurt the last minute, the last drive of that Ole Miss game, and if he can't plays. I'm not really giving the Vols much of a shot because Joe Milton hadn't, hasn't done much of anything this year except for overthrow people. Um, if Hooker can play and he is healthy, then, you know, I think the Vols will be able to score some points and at least keep it interesting for a little bit. I don't think they'll be able to stick around for the whole time. But this is just uh, a tough spot for Tennessee getting Bama when they're banged up. This is the last... Uh, game before both of these teams bye weeks so it's kind of that you know really grindy time of the year where you just want to get to the bye week without any catastrophic injuries like Alabama had with Jalen Waddle last year in this game so hopefully everybody can stay healthy and just get to the bye week um, but this you know the competitiveness of this game probably depends on Hooker's leg so we'll just have to keep an eye on that because as of now, Hypel said day-to-day, so who knows. Lastly, this game is not too great as far as the on-the-field product, but always a sexy rivalry and uniform matchup between USC and Notre Dame. The Trojans travel to South Bend. The number 13 Irish are seven-point favorites. Over-under is 58, and this game is at 6.30 Central Time on Saturday night. Uh... I don't, I, I don't have a whole much, whole bunch on it other than the fact it'll probably be a pretty close game. Uh, USC has been like LSU, kind of a Jekyll and Hyde team. They've come out, look good a couple weeks, and they've just gotten their doors blown off other weeks. They uh, are obviously similar in that they both have, I guess, technically now interim coaches. I don't even know what you want to call it or draw at this point, but... Notre Dame has kind of fallen off the map a little bit after they lost to Cincinnati. They struggled a couple weeks ago with a pretty bad Virginia Tech team. So I don't really have much faith in either of these, but who knows? Maybe it'll be a a close game to watch as the night is winding down for everyone. Now moving on to segments. The hot seat of the week presented by Lee Corso. My tier one, the seat is actively hot. Congratulations to Ed Orgeron for joining Clay Helton in the immortalized midseason firing tier. As far as actually active coaches go, we're moving Manny Diaz up. I moved Ed Orgeron up to the top of my list last week, and I guess that did it for him. Maybe uh, LSU's athletic director listens to the pod and said it sounds bad enough, so we'll go ahead and do it now. Sorry, Manny Diaz. Now you have the top spot on the hot seat list. Miami lost another heartbreaker to North Carolina. 
The Canes are now two and four on the year, and yeah, it would be shocking to see Diaz make it past all of this. Uh, that of course, that North Carolina game it looked it looked pretty entertaining. Miami had a chance, so they were driving the ball down uh, in the last seconds of the game. They had a chance, so they had, they were already deep in UNC territory. And if they would have just ran the ball, they could have set up a field goal to tie it and send it to overtime. They were attacking because they still had some time left on the pl- on the clock, understandably. And their quarterback threw uh, just one of those circus passes where it hit a lineman, bounced off someone's helmet, tipped a ball, and then it ended up in a UNC D lineman's D lineman's belly. So that <laughs> that was a tough way to go down for the Canes, but. Yeah, I think Diaz is all with done. Next, we have another Florida team, Mike Norvell at Florida State. They were off this week, but they still have a horrible record as far as his tenure is concerned. We will keep you updated on the record that he needs to finish the season with to tie Willie Taggart. That is still 4-2 and two to get to Willie Taggart's career record of 9-12. and 12. Um, Scott Frost, you know, we've been giving him a little bit of credit because Nebraska has been playing above their uh, potential over the past few weeks. Like I said, they had lost three out of four to ranked teams by a combined 13 points. These are all teams that are still undefeated in Oklahoma, Michigan State and Michigan. So even just one of those might have saved his ass for the rest of the year. However, this this past week they lost as a favorite at a pretty crappy Minnesota team. So heat up the rumors yet again for our guy Scott Frost. Um Lastly, we have Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech. He is 3-3 three and three on the year now, coming off of a 28-7 to loss to Pitt at home. Never a good look getting blown out on your home turf. Pitt is pretty good. Virginia Tech is not, but you got to be more competitive than that. Pitt was only a touch or a five-point favorite, and they covered that guy too easily. So not looking good for Fuente. I don't have any tier twos because all of these guys that I had on there previously are heating up. So I'll have to do some more digging. Maybe next week we'll present us with a couple new faces that we haven't talked about so much this year. But in order, we have Manny Diaz, Mike Norvell, Scott Frost, and Justin Fuente. So good luck, gentlemen. Who's not back of the week presented by Texas? You betcha, it's your Texas Longhorns, yet again, blowing another fourth quarter lead to the Oklahoma State Cowboys to weaken their record to 4-3 and three on the year, <laughs> a record that Texas fans have probably become pretty uh, familiar with over the past decade. The tweet of the week, boy, there were a lot of good suggestions, courtesy of the Tennessee Volunteers student section. So to quickly recap the end of that Tennessee game, uh... Joe Milton decided to run the ball from like the 30-yard line instead of throwing it up when they only had three seconds left. And by the time that he ran out of bounds, instead of lateraling it to a teammate, the clock had been at zero for like 12 seconds already because it was such a long play. Um, But one of the best accounts on Twitter, at three-year Letterman, said... Didn't expect, or sorry, didn't see the game ending with the Vol failing to throw something. So <laughs> there were like two dozen different tweets 
that were good enough quality regarding the Tennessee fans throwing shit on the field to put on the uh, the tweet of the week. But three-year Letterman, I think it's the first time we featured him on here. So shout out to one of the best accounts on Twitter.com. The helmet sticker goes to LSU running back Tyrion Davis. Price, who had 36 carries for 287 yards and three tutties. The non-ranked game of the upcoming week, we've got Utah at Oregon State. Kind of like Iowa State, I think Utah is starting to come back to life as well. They play this game at 6.30 Central Time, which feels way too early to play this game. Uh, This is kind of a sneaky, tough place to play. Um, So I think Oregon State's done okay this year, but Utah, you know, this is a game they need to win. They can't be messing around anymore. Pac-12 is still wide open, so if they can beat off the Beavers, then they, uh, they'll have a good shot going forward in the South. Um, the Group of Five game of the week, not a whole lot to choose from this week, so we're going to go with our default Cincinnati, see if they can keep their playoff hopes going at Navy at 11 a.m. The Pac-12 after dark game of the week. All right, I don't know if, the, if ESPN.com is wrong, but... I'm not seeing any games outside of New Mexico State at Hawaii that have a kickoff later than 6.30 Central Time. There is a uh, four-and-a-half-hour gap between, like when Notre Dame, USC, Utah, Oregon State kick off, where there's no other games that start until 11 p.m. when New Mexico State plays at uh, Hawaii. So I'm going to double check that real quick to make sure I'm not going crazy and I will confirm or deny. Unfortunately, I'm right. I don't know who <laughs> managed to pull that awful scheduling off or why they did that to us, but uh, maybe we'll have some good baseball on or something. Um, what we got next? What I'll be watching the best games in the morning, afternoon, and evening time slots. Not a whole lot to pick from in the morning, unfortunately, y'all. But I'm going to go with Wake Forest and Army. I know that doesn't sound too uh, appetizing. But Wake Forest is only a three-point favorite there, and they're traveling to West Point. So, you know, maybe uh, I guess Vegas thinks that game's going to be closer than most of us probably would. Army's kind of hung around with a couple really good teams in Wisconsin. Well, okay, they're not really good, but they're Power 5, which is really good for Army. And then, of course, Oklahoma, they almost pulled off the uh, upset in Norman a couple years ago. So Army's been a pesky underdog for Power 5 schools, so we'll see if they can uh, keep that trend going. Uh, 2.30 Central, I am most looking forward to Oklahoma State at Iowa State. Of course, the weird game where non-ranked Iowa State is the favorite over number eight Oklahoma State. And then at nighttime, I will be watching Bama, but I think the more competitive game for 60 minutes will be USC at Notre Dame. Even if both of those teams are kind of disappointing this year, that rivalry game is usually a lot of fun and just a beautiful uniform matchup that's always nice to have on. Uh, Game day grub, I have not decided what I am doing yet. I've also not decided about the bet of the week best bet of the week, uh, but I will post both of those on Twitter's, Twitter's Twitter as I decide. Uh, Game to Grub, I'll probably do be doing something a little bit bigger of a cook. I'll probably have people over for the Bama-Tennessee game and uh, possible game six of the NLCS. 
on Saturday, so I might try to do some barbecue. Bet of the week, we improved to five and three on the season, so doing really well, well there. Uh, we had Bama first half minus nine and a half, which was an easy winner. I had good faith in the tide pretty much first half and full game coming off of the uh, horrible performance at A&M. And thanks to Will, Alabama, not Bama, Rogers, he uh, helped us out with a couple interceptions and uh, seven points off of the pick six from Jordan Battle. So that one was as easy as they come. Hope you all followed along on that one. And I think that just about does it except for a voicemail. So we'll touch on that and then wrap this bad boy up. Roll Tide. This is John Pataskalisa. Um, of course, Iowa loses, and Bama is back in the playoff picture. But I'm calling about baseball. I know this is a football podcast, but what do you think the Braves have a chance against the Dodgers or what? Roll Tide. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Thanks, JM. Loyal listener calling in again. I appreciate it. Always happy to talk some Braves on the podcast. I try to keep it relatively unbiased when it comes to the college football, but I think every person who listens to this pod is a Braves fan, so why not give the good good guys a little attention as we make our NLCS run? So, uh, of course, (laughs) by the time you're listening to this, uh, Game 3 will have already happened. I'm recording... On Monday night after game two. So Braves are up 2-0. Same thing happened last year. And of course with any Atlanta or Georgia based team in general. You can truly never have a lead big enough. We have all been through that. As the Braves blew a 2-0 and also 3-1 lead. Uh, last year in the NLCS against the Dodgers. Of course, both teams look a good bit different than they did last year, but we'll focus on the Braves. Uh, You know, Noah Cunha, Soroka was not in the playoffs last year because of his Achilles that he re-injured this season. And Noah Zunia with his pending domestic abuse, whatever's going on with that, don't even know. The Braves have gotten a lot better. Uh with their uh, trade deadline acquisitions. Uh, It really, (laughs) really bummed me out to see that Jorge Soler could not play in the NLCS due to testing positive with COVID. I don't remember having issues with COVID all season long for the Braves. So the fact that it happened to our leadoff guy, you know, right before the NLCS was a huge bummer, but thankfully it didn't spread around the whole locker room feels like something that would happen to Atlanta. Um, I mean, I'm feeling good. I think we definitely need to get one of these three in L.A. because the last thing we want to do is come back to Atlanta being in the hole. So I think if if we were able to get one of these two come back next Saturday and play a game six with a chance to clinch in Atlanta, then all we would have to do is win one of the next two. I know no one wants to see that shit go to a game seven. Been there, done that. No, thank you. Uh The good news is that while the Braves do look quite a bit different, some of that is unfortunate, mostly Acuna, but listen to the game's three, four, and five starting pitchers for the Braves uh, last year in the NLCS bubble. 
So game three, we started Kyle Wright. We lost that game 15-3. to three. <laughs> uh, Game four, we started Bryce Wilson. We actually played, pitched very well that game. But then game five, we started Will Smith and caught the loss 7-3. to three. So <clears throat> the good news is that none of those guys are going to be starting a game uh, this time around in games three, four, and five. We've got Morton on the bump on game three, which will have already happened by the time you're listening to this. So hopefully hopefully that's the dub. Weird start time with that one. Two o'clock local first pitch in LA, which I think can only help the Braves with you know, with it being an early game. LA is impossible to get around, so maybe some of their crowd will still be filtering in over the first two or three innings. And we've got big game Charlie pitching for us, who, if it is a big crowd, he's not going to be rattled. Game four, I suspect, will be a bullpen game, um, as it's kind of the natural gap in the rotation. And then we're going to have Freed, Anderson, and Morton for games five, six, and seven, whatever necessary. So, you know, uh, I don't know. Let's see who the Dodgers are pitching tomorrow for game three. They've got Bueller, so that's going to be tough. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I think if we win one in LA, which one out of three is not too much to ask for, then I like our chances to win one of the last two with Anderson and Morton on the bump in Atlanta. So I'll be watching, I'll be cheering for them. Um, I've been kind of thinking about getting a second TV all football season. And some of you may have saw I ended up pulling the trigger since Alabama and Braves were uh, playing at the same time on Saturday night. I am eager to see the start time for a game six on Saturday, assuming the Braves don't get the sweep or win it in five. But if we do end up dropping two or three or worse in LA, then we will be playing probably on Saturday night during the Bama Tennessee game. So I might have my hands full again. Thankfully, the tide didn't uh, make me pay too closely attention to the state game in the second half. I was able to kind of turn my focus to the Braves as that was getting down the stretch. I would like to see the same thing against the Vols, but you know it would be even cooler just sweeping this thing. Uh, you know what? In an attempt to <laughs> speak an amazing Saturday night into existence, I'll take the Braves in six so I can uh, celebrate with a cigar and a bottle of champagne and uh, see the Braves get to the World Series for the first time in my lifetime. So that's it for the voicemail. Thanks again for calling, JM. I really appreciate the the questions and everything and the input on Twitter. You are one of the best listeners out there I have. So thank you for keeping involved. Makes it a lot more fun for me when I have a little bit of feedback. Um, yeah, that's all I got for the Week 7 and Week 8 pod. I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode that is already out, talking about Coach Orgeron getting fired from LSU. And uh, good luck to everyone's team, but mostly the Braves. Chop, chop.